It's good to be here this morning with you guys. Um, we are in this series called Where the Wind Blows, where we're tracking the trajectory of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts. And there's a specific reason it's called Where the Wind Blows, and that's because in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus describes the movement of the Spirit by comparing it to the movement of the wind. He says, you hear the wind, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. And so it is with everybody who is born of the Spirit. Kind of an interesting word picture, a little bit like, huh, what does he mean by that? Like people who are born of the Spirit are like the wind in that you can't see where the wind is coming from or see where it's going, but you can hear it sound, you can see it move things, you can feel it on your body, even though you can't really track its course. And I think that's actually kind of significant for the part of the story we're in today. Last week we heard about Stephen, who was um, the first martyr of the early church, killed for his faith, and this kind of marks the beginning of some pretty intense persecution against the people of God in Jerusalem. And it's kind of this moment in the story where we like sort of uh, kind of catch our breath a little bit, and if we don't know how it turns out, we might we might be sitting there reading and going, "Well, how's this going to go? Like, is this is this like the end? Is this like a, a road bump that they can get past? Is this going to like work out? What's going to happen here?" And uh, we're introduced to someone in chapter seven named uh, Saul who is sort of a young man, one of the Pharisees, and, and really interested in crushing this new Jesus movement. And he's doing it in the name of religion. He's doing it in the name of the Jewish faith and in the name of his God. He thinks that this is really important for us to crush this new thing that has risen up among us called Christianity. So he's actually there. Um, it says when, when, sto- when Stephen is stoned, he's actually there holding everybody's coats while they kill him and approving of what's going on. And that's kind of where we pick up the thread of this story, starting at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And before I start, like, telling the story and reading the scriptures, can I pray for us? Is that okay? Lord Jesus, you uh, walked on this earth, taught us the ways of the kingdom, imparted the Holy Spirit. And when you returned to the Father, you left your body on earth as the church. So I believe that as we gather today, um, Jesus, you are present. As we, as we gather and com- commune with you, we are also experiencing your presence in a really powerful way. Jesus, would you speak to our hearts and our minds? I confess to you that I am very weak. I'm in need of you today, Jesus. Would you be the teacher this morning? Thank you. In your name. Amen. So at the beginning of chapter 8, all of this has just gone down, and uh, and we're kind of left wondering what's going to happen. And this actually marks sort of a turning point in the early story of the church. Up at this, up till this point, they, they'd been localized in Jerusalem, just sort of like ministering to the people in Jerusalem, gathering in groups throughout Jerusalem, and they had really been uh, only found in that one sort of uh, central nucleus. But after the stoning of Stephen, this whole... Uh, wave of persecution kicks off in the early church. And it says in the beginning of chapter 8 that Saul, the guy who was standing there holding the coats and approving of the stoning of Stephen, he's now 
kicking off this whole campaign of terror against the people of God. It says that he's knocking on house after house after house and dragging people off to prison. He's, he is leading the charge trying to crush this movement in Jerusalem. So necessarily, because of their, the, the need for safety and the need to you know, survive, the, the church begins to disperse and move beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And one particular disciple named Philip goes to a place called Samaria. And we've already seen Samaria in some of the Gospels. And if you've been around the church, you might be familiar with Samaria. But it's sort of this area of Judea where the Samaritans lived. And the Samaritans were sort of like um, a, a sect or even a cult within the Jewish faith. And because of their particular beliefs, they were really despised and looked down on. They were the social and religious inferiors to the Jewish people. So it's kind of, kind of a, a a place to go that you wouldn't expect the gospel to to begin to make inroads in, but that's where Stephen is led, or sorry, Philip is led by the Spirit of God. He goes into Samaria, and then it says, throughout all Judea, the, the apostles and the disciples are spread, and the word of God goes forth into all the surrounding areas. And you sort of get this sense that, like, as this movement in Jerusalem is, is attempted to be crushed, as they're, like, trying to stomp on it, what actually happens is that it spreads out everywhere else. And, and I think this is significant for us as we're tracking the movement of the Spirit through the, the book of Acts, because Jesus has described the Spirit and those born of the Spirit like the rushing wind, right? We see that it is moving. We can see it by its effects. We can feel it. We can hear its sound, but we don't know where it's come from or where it's going. Have you ever tried to trap the wind? When I was a little kid, I remember trying to trap wind in a peanut butter jar. I found this peanut butter jar. I was like maybe five years old, and I was like going in the backyard trying to trap it and like close it really fast, and then I thought if I opened it, it would like rush out. Have you ever tried to trap wind? Have you ever tried to stop wind? Like, like recently I was on a backpacking trip, and I was trying to light this stove, but it was really windy because we were on this little ledge above this lake, and the wind was coming down off the mountains right through our campsite, and every time I would light this lighter to try to light this camp stove, the thing would immediately go out. So I put all these little barriers around where I thought the wind was coming from, but it turns out wind can find a way around your barriers, and it can sort of whip around a rock and come in from the other side. And it's the idea that, that like as, Paul, or as Saul, later Paul, as Saul is trying to crush the movement of the Spirit among the people of God, what he actually does is end up spreading it further. Because you, you can't stop the Spirit of God. Like you, you can't block its movement, its trajectory you can't control it. You can't contain it. And every time somebody tries to get in its way, what they actually do is end up spreading its power further and further afield. There's an early church father um, about 100 years after the events of Acts, a couple hundred years after the events of Acts, a guy named Tertullian. He has this very famous saying. He says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he means by that is the more you try to kill us, the further and further the message spreads. It's this sort of paradoxical upside-down thing that Jesus was talking about all along when he said that God loves to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
or it's similar to how it's similar to how we think of of like when when God wants to move in a really powerful way, we might assume that he's going to use the most powerful people or the most obvious means, but God seems to delight in surprising us. And why would that be? Well, this guy, Saul, who's actually trying to murder the church, later actually meets Jesus, spoiler alert, chapter 9, we'll get there in a couple weeks, and he becomes a, a leader in the early church, and he actually puts it this way. He says, oh, oh, see, we have this all-surpassing power from God that we hold in these fragile clay jars. So he's describing the, the all-surpassing spirit of God, and he's describing us as weak, broken, and cracked vessels. And he says, this is to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so you get the sense that like the early church is not sufficient to this task of surviving and fighting back against persecution, but the Spirit of God is. The Spirit of God cannot be stopped. Like the, if, we, if we've read Acts so far, we know that the church is already full of issues and fights and people who are backbiting, and we know that it's just going to get more and more so, and you think this messed up group of people is so like difficult and there's so many issues and there's so much drama that like clearly they're not sufficient to the task so you would expect that when someone starts to try to stomp them out that it would work but actually it turns out you can't stop the spirit of God so the movement spreads farther afield and Philip ends up going to Samaria and he begins to preach the word of God there And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 9 of chapter 8. There's some really interesting things that happen here um, that are very nuanced. And I'm going to try to resist giving really, like, uh, profound proclamations. And we're just going to talk and see if we can track through this story, the movement of God's Spirit. In verse 9, it says, There was a man in Samaria named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God and is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time, and as he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, And the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, and even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this is actually a really cool success story, right? Like there's this, there's this sorcerer, this, this practicer of magic. And in, in that time, in that place, that wouldn't be super uncommon to have sort of somebody who's practicing witchcraft or divination or, 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 or uh, witch doctor kind of practices. That wouldn't be unusual. And, and, and people look at what he's able to do and they find it incredible. They, they give him honor and acclaim and glory and he's kind of lifted up and sort of puffed up above the rest. And they say, this man is the power of God. And, and it's clear from the way it's described here that this, this man um, is not filled with the Holy Spirit. That if, if he is filled with a spiritual power, it is actually a power not of God. And so he, he's somebody in need of the gospel. And what, what, a, what a good success story. Like Philip preaches and Simon believes and is baptized. 
And then follows Philip around going, oh man, I want to hear more about this. And wow, I'm watching the signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit is doing through you among the people. And I'm amazed. I'm in awe of what's happening here. And so you get the sense that as Saul tried to crush the movement of Jesus, it spread out with power among all the people and it's, it's changing lives. Like people are coming to believe in Jesus. And this, this for us like, should be a positive thing, right? Because, because uh, I know a lot of folks um, who in, in my life and in our city who not only don't believe in the name of Jesus but have other spiritual practices and spiritual beliefs and spiritual experiences um, that I, I, I would um, uh, probably categorize under the realm of the demonic. I know people in the city who practice witchcraft I know people in the city who put their trust in all kinds of uh, practices of divination and all kinds of practices of, of spiritualism that are apart from Jesus. And this is good news for me, that when the gospel is preached and goes forth in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of God cannot be controlled, cannot be stopped, and people come to believe and are baptized. But of course, because people are complicated and because our lives and even our life of faith can be so complicated, that's not where the story of Simon ends. Let's look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All right, so there's this group of people who believe, but they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John come down, lay their hands on, and, and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And this say, it says that they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. By the way, I don't think it's telling us that like it's a lesser thing to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think it's just saying that is all that had happened to them so far, Right? So, so, so these apostles come down, and they lay their hands on the Samaritans to, that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. And now, now this is a passage of Scripture that people, um, if you just go to any online forum or pick up any commentary, people will debate this until the cows come home. You can do a whole doctoral studies and theses about this passage. Because people look at it, and they go, wait, wait, are you saying that it is possible to believe in Jesus and not have the Holy Spirit? Or are you saying that like, once I receive Jesus, I need a second experience of God or a second baptism of the Spirit? Or wait, what are we saying? Is it just that they had the Spirit, but they weren't receiving the sign gifts just yet? And so people debate this on and on and on and on, and there's all kinds of different commentaries and really smart people who like speak the original languages fluently and have spent their lives studying this who will debate this and be on various sides of this conversation. And I'm going to tell you what I think. You guys want to know what I think? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what is happening here as people believe and then the apostles pray that they receive the Spirit, and the Spirit comes upon them. I don't know. And I actually don't think that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is, I don't think that's his point here. I don't think that's what he's highlighting here. 
But when it comes to the theology of can you believe in Jesus and not have the Spirit, or do you need a second baptism in the Spirit, or, or is there a, a fresh in, indwelling of the Spirit that occurs at various points throughout our lives, and, and what is it that we think about? I, I don't know. You should ask Simon. He'd probably have a really good answer for you. But I think Luke is trying to highlight something really specific. What is that thing? We'll come back to it. Now when Simon, that's Simon the sorcerer, this is verse 18, saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he went up and offered them money. And he said, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon has left this life as like the spiritual authority, the worker of wonders, and has begun to believe in Jesus and is following Philip around. And then he sees that when the apostles, the other apostles come from Jerusalem and begin to pray for the Holy Spirit to be on these believers, he sees that power is flowing from those apostles into these other people. And he He's like, I want in on that. In fact, I'd love to be one of those people. So privately, he goes up to them and he says, hey, 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 if I slip you a little cash, can you give me this same power so that I can then have this spiritual authority and power and ability to like work wonders among this community? And we kind of look at Simon and we're like, oh, buddy, you don't really know how it works, do you? Like, like we, we look at Simon and, and we're like, why would you offer money to try to get the Spirit of God? Like, that's silly. Like, like we know because we are good Protestants in the tradition of the early Reformers that salvation is by grace through faith. And we know that we can't earn and we can't buy and we can't, like, earn our way into some sort of spiritual greatness or spiritual understanding or spiritual anointing, but that it's the gift of God. And we look at this and we go, oh, Simon, why, why would you ever think that this would work? And then um, as I was meditating on this passage throughout the course of my week, I thought, um, well, I don't know that I've ever tried to buy God with money, but I think I've for sure tried to earn his blessings, I think I've probably for sure tried to earn his affection. Huh. I think I've, I've for sure tried to like offer God something in return for what I want. I've definitely bartered with God. Maybe I'm not that different from Simon the sorcerer. Like may, maybe I too forget that like whereas grace is not opposed to effort, grace is opposed to earning. And if, if God is who God claims to be, that I can do nothing, nothing to buy or to barter the blessings that he wants to give. I can do nothing. I can give him nothing that will somehow cause him to give me more in return. If God is who God claims to be, then then God is always pouring out the fullness of his blessings, the fullness of the Spirit, the fullness of his anointing, and it is incumbent upon me simply to receive. Doesn't stop me trying to barter, though. Doesn't stop me trying to, like, behave a certain way so God will do a certain thing. Or, or, like, fix a certain problem in my life so God will then bless me in this other area. 
doesn't stop me like trying to get all the spiritual knowledge I possibly can so that then maybe if I get all the knowledge, God will do whatever it is I'm wanting him to do. doesn't stop me bartering with God all the time. And so now I, I, as after meditating on this passage, I can look at Simon and go, oh, yeah, me too. Me, I, I know what that's like. But Peter, when he hears this, like, give me money, I'm going to give you money, and you give me the Spirit so I can work these wonders. Uh, Peter has a really strong reaction. So just hear what Peter says in verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver and gold perish with you. A colloquial um, translation of that that I heard from one translator would be, um, to hell with you and your money. Because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's some strong language from Peter, right? That's some pretty like fire and brimstone kind of stuff, right? Like how dare you try to buy the gift of God? I see that you are just trapped in iniquity. You better fall on your knees and repent and pray for forgiveness that if possible, God will have mercy on you. There's an intensity to what Peter is doing. There's, there's a vehemence to his language that sort of takes us aback, and we're like, ooh, that's pretty harsh, especially with a brand-new believer. Like, what is Peter doing, especially when you think of who Peter is and how, like, less than a year before, he was denying Jesus and weeping because he realized that he had betrayed his king. Like, this guy should be the most compassionate with sinners. This guy should be like the, the one to go, oh, Simon, buddy, let's sit down and talk about this. You know, let me tell you about my struggle with sin, and, and then I want you to, like, really think about your struggle with sin, and maybe we can repent together. But No, he just, like, goes for it. What is he doing? And why is it such a big deal? Like, Simon, Simon he, he did something foolish. But was it really that bad? And I think Peter goes so hard at Simon in this moment because um, he realizes that in, in this moment, in this very early stage in Simon's journey with Jesus and his walk with Jesus, that, that something hangs in the balance. Something really, really critical hangs in the balance. And so he has to go really hard at this moment to try to like help Simon break through what he's uh, struggling through. And he may not even recognize that he's struggling through this, but, but, but Peter recognizes something really essential is here, and you're either going to leave this encounter with a fresh understanding of the gospel and your role in receiving the grace of God, or you're going to walk away and continue this life where you try to control and contain and manipulate the power of God to your own ends. And I think that this is a big deal for Peter because what Simon is doing is a spiritualized version of what Saul had done at the beginning of our story today. Saul put himself in authority over the moves of the Spirit and what the Spirit was doing among the people of God. He attempted to contain, 
control, and crush. His goal was to control the power of God. Simon, in a more spiritual way, in a more like in the name of Jesus way, in a maybe more acceptable way, decided that he too could manipulate, control, and use the power of God to his own ends. And this is a really big deal because um, I know personally, as Christians, as Christians, we can get caught in that trap really easily. Here's what I mean. It's really easy for me to have a vision of my life and how it should go and what it should be like and who I want my, uh, what I want my future to look like and, and, and how I want God to interact with me. It's really easy for me to even have a specific vision of like how, how I want my spiritual life to go. And it's really easy for me to go to God and try to like play some kind of bartering game with him to get him to anoint and bless my own ideas for my own life. Here's a, maybe a uh, more clear but maybe more difficult to hear way of putting it. Um, it's super easy for me to use my faith for my own self-actualization. Simon had a vision for his leadership in that community. And he wanted to use the Spirit of God as sort of an accessory, a tool, a means to an end. And when God and faith become our means to an end, something very precious hangs in the balance. And I think Peter is so vehement because he wants to rescue Simon. He wants to offer Simon a moment to break through and to not use God and the things of God to his own ends. And it's, it might be hard for us to understand because we don't usually practice sorcery, most of us. Most of us haven't tried to like buy the favor of God or the spirit of God. But we do other things. We do other things, right? I, I'm a Christian because fill in the blank. If we're really honest, sometimes we'll say, well, because it makes me feel better or because it gives me a sense of community that I've always wanted. And the problem with all the reasons that we might put on that list that aren't just for God himself, it's not that they're wrong or evil or wicked or twisted. It's that at some point, my faith doesn't make me feel better and I just have to love God for who he is. And if my sole goal in serving Jesus is that I feel good and my life feels like it's fulfilled and I have self-actualization, then when that runs out, I look for the door. If my whole goal in following Jesus and being a person of faith and actually wanting to come to know God is that I feel like I have this warm and fuzzy community life, then as soon as it gets hard and doesn't feel good, I'm looking for the door. And there's nothing wrong with these desires and having these like urgent, aching longings for these things, for life to be good, for community to be rich and beautiful and loving. And those can be great first steps towards Jesus. But if we don't grow up, like if we don't spiritually grow up and move beyond that into loving not, the, not just the gift but the giver himself, then we are constantly in danger of using God's as a means to our own ends and something very precious hangs in the balance. 
A few years ago, I went to one of my spiritual mentors. By the way, find a spiritual mentor. I, uh, there was this guy I had heard speak at a conference, and I tracked down his phone number, and I called him uh, uh, on some random day and was like, hi, I don't know if you remember me. We met, but you were talking about mentorship, and I don't have any mentors, and I'm sure you're busy, but would you be my mentor? Thank you. Bye. And he called me back a day later and was like, I would be honored. I would just, I'd love to. And uh, so we, we, I've been meeting with this guy regularly for years now, and it's great. And I remember a few years ago, I told him, you know, God really revealed to me, it was like January, God really revealed to me as I've been praying about this new year, um, God, God revealed to me that um, I, I have a hard time um, just enjoying God for his own sake. Like, I love the gifts and the blessings he gives me, but like, I, I, um, I have a hard time enjoying God. Like, that, that was the phrase, enjoying God. So I even like looked up online books about enjoying God and like found a book and I read it. And and I was like uh, walking through this kind of material and this kind of conversations with this guy. And, um, and I remember uh, about halfway through that year, as we were talking about this, he goes, um, Ben, I think the journey you're on is the journey of growing up in your faith. It's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, there's nothing wrong with loving the gifts of God. There's nothing wrong with loving the community he provides, loving the good feelings, the warmth, the comfort. He is the God of all comfort. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that when, when, when you're a little kid. Like, there's nothing wrong with loving your favorite aunt or uncle because they always give you a sucker. Like, there's nothing wrong with that when you're four, five, six, seven years old. But if you're 30 years old and you still only go see that aunt or uncle to get a sucker, something's wrong in that relationship. So he explained it to me. I think you're growing up in your faith and that you're beginning to love God for his own sake, for the, the mere beauty of him, for, for just the, the joy of being with him, for, for just like how good and, and, and kind and powerful and generous he is. You're, you're just, you're falling in love with God. And I'm still like very much on this beginning part of this journey, but I think that's what Peter is so worked up about. Like, you can use God as a means to your own ends, but at some point, you have to, like, move beyond it. Like, at some point, when, when the Spirit of God rolls into town, and whoever's bringing it into town, right, the apostles or somebody else, when the Spirit of God rolls into town, at some point, you have to, what does he say? Repent, repent, pray to the Lord. At some point, you have to, what, what's the posture of repentance? It's probably, probably kneeling, right? It's probably, probably a real, real like lowering of myself. In fact, the word humility, do you guys know the word humility? Comes from the Latin for, the, that's humus, which is like the, the, the stuff that builds up on the ground after like decaying vegetation. It's, uh, humility means close to the ground. So at some point when the Spirit of God comes rolling into town, instead of bartering with, how can you make my life better? How can you fulfill my dreams? How can you solve my issues and my problems? At some point, I have to just get down on my knees and say, I want you for your sake. And my, my plans all come second. And all of my desires and my self-actualization and my satisfaction in this life, th those things are real, but they, they come second. And I just want you, God. And I, don't, I don't have anything to give you in, in offering and bartering for this. I just want you. And I think the Spirit of God is actually like 
involved in that transformation. Like, um, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves and pretend that, like, we can find our way to that attitude on our own. The Spirit of God is involved in that. What does the Spirit of God do? A lot of stuff. Like, um, at, this, at this point in, in the, uh, the story of Jesus in the early church, like, a lot of the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so they actually didn't have a lot of, like, pneumatology, like the theology of the Spirit at that point. But they did have some things that Jesus had said. And in uh, Jesus' upper room discourse... In John chapter 16, one of the many things, many things that he says about the Spirit is this. Just listen to this. He says, when he comes, that's when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Which means this. If I experience conviction in my heart for the way I'm interacting with God and others, that conviction is the move of the Holy Spirit. That conviction is the move of the Holy Spirit. So as Peter full of the Spirit, is offering the Spirit to the people around him, his move towards Simon is one of conviction. Like, Simon experiences, like, his sins being pointed out and called out. And I believe that conviction is the work of the Spirit. And what is he calling him to do? Repent. Humble yourself. Get low to the ground. Recognize that you can do nothing to buy or earn or barter the gift of God. Get humble. And then what happens when we can get humble and when we can recognize the conviction of the Spirit, humble ourselves, repent, well, we've actually already seen it happen. I told you we'd go back to that bit where they, can people be saved and not have the Spirit and the apostles come, right? Um, what, what's going on among the Samaritans here? Let's look at it from their perspective for a moment. So the Samaritans have believed one way, and it's different than the way the Jews have believed for, for many, many generations. But they believe in God. They just have all these, like, kind of mixed-up ideas about God. And, and Philip comes, who's a Jew, and says, I, I actually have news for you about the Jewish Messiah who's now Lord of the world and actually wants to save you in all kinds of ways. And far from fighting back, the Samaritans humble themselves and receive the word of God. And they, they submit themselves to baptism. And it is clear in the scriptures, from John the Baptist all the way up to this point, it is clear that baptism for these early believers, is an act of repentance. I am repenting. My old life dies in the water with Jesus, and I am resurrected to new life. Baptism is an act of humbling ourselves and repenting before God. And, and then, then what happens? Well, they, they want to receive the Spirit of God, and so these other apostles come from Jerusalem and lay hands on them. And there's something quite humbling about letting others lay hands on you and pray for you. It happened to me just this morning, and there's something quite humbling to, to recognizing I don't have what I need. I can't barter it out of God. I don't have anything to offer God. I just need the gift of God. I just need God's Spirit himself, God himself within me, and I can't earn it, buy it, borrow it, or negotiate it out of him. It is a pure gift, and I need somebody to literally put their hands on me and pray that God would give me this gift. I think what 
Luke is trying to highlight here is the difference in attitude between the Samaritan believers and Simon the sorcerer. He's trying to point out the way they were approaching receiving the gift of God with humility, with repentance. And and this is really key for us, I think, because we already talked about the Spirit convicts us. When I feel convicted, it's the Spirit of God moving within me. If I respond with this attempt to gain spiritual power, like Simon did, what's the result? It's more conviction. It's more intense, like you need to repent. You need to turn around. And if I persevere in that path and I ignore conviction, I say, no, no, I should never feel bad about my sin. No, I should never feel bad about the way I'm interacting with God and others. No, 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 that's not from God. That's not from God. That's not from God. If I persevere in that, I become numb to that conviction. And this is why believers who like trust in Jesus and and like have come to faith in Jesus can years down the line find themselves in a situation where they've ignored conviction so much to the point that they do things that explode their lives. And this is what Peter is trying to save Simon from. Alternatively, if you're among those early Samaritan believers of which there were so many, You've experienced the conviction of the Spirit. And instead of responding the way Simon did, by trying to barter and gain control and gain power and gain status, you humble yourself. You repent. And you say, God, I do need the gift of God. I need you, God. I need the Spirit of God. And there is nothing I can offer you in return. I just need your grace. What is the result? you get to receive the Spirit. Like, that's what happens to them. You get to receive the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of commentaries about this passage um, who will tell you that a lot of what I just said is wrong. That's fine. Uh, Because a lot of people look at this passage and all they want to know is, was Simon really a believer? Did he really trust in Jesus? No, 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 his real conversion hadn't happened yet. No, 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 he, he really, he must have just been going with the flow, doing what everyone else was doing. He couldn't have really meant it, because look at the way he acted. But as I've been meditating on this passage, I noticed a couple things. First of all, what I've already said, that I act like Simon all the time. I also noticed that this text was pretty clear in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. Okay, it didn't say he pretended to believe, it says that Simon himself believed. Okay, so, so if I find myself acting like Simon, and it's all about, and this whole passage is about was he really saved, was he not saved, then I look at my behavior, and I'm like, oh my gosh, am I really saved? Like, you guys, this is a journey I went on this week with this passage. Like, oh my gosh, did I have, do I really mean it? Am I, a, am I a false Christian? Like, do I not really have the Spirit of God? Oh my gosh, like, is everything, am I okay? And suddenly my meditation on the Scripture turns inward, it's all about me, me, me. Where am I at? Me, 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 me. What's my relationship with God, right? What, where, have I done enough? Have I done it right? Did I get the right words? All this stuff. But I think what this is actually showing us is what uh, the normal life of a believer looks like. Sometimes we experience conviction from the Spirit. We repent and we receive a fresh indwelling of His Spirit. Have you experienced that? It's amazing how when you confess 
and repent and turn from sin like the grace of God falls on you afresh. C.S. Lewis says, the good man is sorry for the sins he committed, but not sorry for the fresh grace that he receives in repenting. Like, when we repent in humility because the Spirit has convicted us, God is so good that then he fills us with a fresh indwelling of the Spirit in that place of our humility and receptivity. Alternatively, sometimes in my life, I experience the conviction of God, and then I start playing games with the Spirit. And I start like really trying to like find my way around having to repent, because it's, it's so uncomfortable. I don't want to do it. I don't want to humble myself. I, I'm on this, I have a clear journey for my Tuesday, God, and it did not include humbling myself and like opening myself to grace. It included a lot of really cool things that were going to prove to me and others how great my life is and how cool I am. That was my plan for Tuesday. And God's like, repent, repent, repent. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to. And what happens is the conviction has to get more and more intense. And sometimes even a brother or sister in Christ, Peter in this passage, has to come up to me and be like, Ben. You're, you're being crazy. Like, you're, you're, you're doing the Jesus thing, but, like, you're doing it in a way that is so, like, not helpful. You, you, need, to, you need to, like, stop. You need to check yourself. You need to humble yourself. And, and hopefully, please, God, by your grace, I, in that moment, the conviction is in my face enough that I do humble myself. We don't get to know how Simon responds. He asks them to pray for him, but we don't get to know whether or not he personally repents, gets down on his knees, humbles himself, and receives a fresh indwelling of the Spirit. But I think what we're seeing here is a picture of how we live our lives of faith and how we grow in our faith. Like, if I experience the Spirit convicting me and can humble myself, a fresh indwelling of the Spirit comes, and I can grow. I can do that thing we talked about, growing up, where I begin to love God for who God is, rather than loving only just the, the goodies and the blessings. But if I, if I hold tight to, no, I want to buy the goodies and blessings, I want to barter with God, I want to play games with God, then I may actually never get to experience that fresh indwelling, or at least not until somebody finally gets me to stop what I'm doing and humble myself, lower myself, repent. This is my daily experience as a believer in Jesus, is my choice in how I respond to the conviction of the Spirit. Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s, said that when Jesus called believers to repent, he meant that the whole life of the believer should be repentance. Whew, that sounds hard, doesn't it? So what, I should walk around just being like, I'm a worm, I'm the worst. I don't think that's what the Spirit is trying to invite us to do. Remember that when the Scriptures, when God convicts, it is always towards the end of new life. I think God just knows that if we're not humble and open, we can't receive a fresh indwelling of the Spirit. We can't really experience, we can know about forgiveness through Jesus on the cross, but we can't really experience it unless we are humbled in repentance before him. And so it, it's not the call to repentance, the, the, the Spirit's conviction is not the call to like feel bad about ourselves. It's not even necessarily the call to like be miserable. Like I, I honestly believe that we can repent without having a deep, deep sense of sorrow. Often it will include that, 
But oftentimes, it's just a knowledge of, oh my goodness, I'm out of line again. I missed the boat. I'm coming home, Jesus. It's all you. It's all you. See, I don't think the Bible, I know because I've read the whole thing, the Bible actually never, it commands us to feel a certain way, not even to like feel really, really bad about our sins. It just convinces us, or it just commands us to do certain things. And the feeling of grief over sin may come, and that's part of the conviction process, but the Bible actually doesn't command that. What it commands us to do is humble ourselves and repent. So like even if I don't feel the like deep sense of guilt and shame, I can still return to God again and again each day, each minute. As I'm walking from here to there, as I'm driving from this place to that place, I can look at my life and I can go, oh God, I think I just did something or I think I have been ignoring you or I think like my heart's out of line here. I, I come home. I repent. Yeah, God, you are the thing that I need. Would you fill me afresh? I'm humble and repentant before you. And it becomes this habit. It becomes this way we live our lives before God, where instead of bartering with him, instead of playing games with him, we are constantly just open and humble before him. And what happens is the power of God that Saul could not stamp out begins to fill us in a greater and greater measure because we are open and humble and ready to receive the gift of God. So the call to repentance is not a call to shame and to walking around with heavy loads of guilt. It's a call to being open to new life like we've never experienced it before. And I, like I, I want that. <laughs> I really want that. And I want to stop playing games with God. I, I just want to like fall on my knees before him and say, I, I know I don't have it right. And I don't even know all the ways I don't have it right. And that's not about me and my shame and my guilt. I just want to acknowledge that I need the gift of your spirit, the gift of your grace. Fill me afresh. Can you begin to see what a light and free way that would be to live? If it's not up to me, if it's not about who I can bribe to do what, or what I can barter with God for what blessing, or how good I can be so God does X, Y, and Z, can you imagine the freedom of a life where I walk around going, I am lowly, I don't, I don't have anything to offer Jesus, but I'm open, and he pours all of his goodness and his spirit and his power and his love into me. Can you imagine how freeing, how light a life like that would be? And it begins in repentance. Now, we're going to practice repentance here in a moment when we do communion. And repentance may not bring a deep sense of guilt and grief. It's okay. You can still acknowledge, Jesus, I know that I'm not getting it all right. In fact, here's a few things I'm pretty sure that you want me to repent of. I turn from those things. I turn to you. I ask for the grace of your forgiveness and restoration. Would you fill me with your spirit? It's like it's a practice that we do. Now, when we practice repentance here in a few minutes, you may be filled with deep grief and anguish. That's also okay. Understand that when we are crumpled under the weight of our sins, Jesus is the one, like he does with the woman in adultery in John chapter 8, who comes into the middle, offers us his hand, and lifts us up into a new life. Hey, go and leave your life of sin. You don't need that anymore. I don't condemn you. Go in peace. 
So whatever your experience of repentance is, it's not about how I feel. It's not about what, whatever weight of emotion might come through me in that moment, but it's about turning from something back to God and opening myself in humility to receive afresh his grace and his spirit, being humble before God and allowing him to turn my affections from all of his gifts, which are good gifts, and back onto him himself. I think there's probably no better place to practice repentance than at the communion tables. So in a moment, the band can come up here. In a moment, we're going to do communion. And if you need gluten-free, it's on this side over here. But we're going to take the bread and dip it in the juice because Jesus said, hey, um, this is my body. This bread is my body, which is broken for you. Like I broke my body. I allowed myself to be broken on the cross so that you could be certain of your forgiveness and your welcome and, and your acceptance when you come to me broken. And then he poured out the juice, and he's, or the wine in his case, and he said, hey, I, I, this is my blood, which is shed for the sins of the world. And so we come in repentance, and no part of us needs to say, I'm sorry, God, but I'll make up for it. Because I think he looks at it and he goes, no, you won't. I already did. Like, your blood doesn't atone. Only mine does. And Jesus' blood has been poured out for the sins of the world. So as we come to communion this morning, let us repent. Like, like, what a gift, what a joy that God would grant us the opportunity to repent. And the way we do this is you, you can sit still for a moment before you come to the tables, or you can stand immediately and kind of do your processing while you're in line. But take a moment, take a moment to notice the conviction of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, where are you pointing out what you want me to turn from? Where are you convicting me? And I'm not going to worry about like whether or not I can fix it by this time tomorrow. I'm just going to like turn away from it right now. And I'm going to humble myself and say, I need your broken body. I need your blood shed for my sins. I just need to receive. I have nothing else to offer. I'm not going to explain myself. Not going to try to like tell you how I'll do better. I'm just going to humble myself and receive from you. And in that moment, as we receive that forgiveness and that fresh indwelling, we can open ourselves to like the Spirit of God, which is the power that God gives us to be able to meet those sins when they come up again. And that begins this process, this cycle where we're repenting and receiving, repenting and receiving, repenting, humbling ourselves, receiving, and getting more and more power to fight these sins, to like face these temptations, and to actually allow God's spirit to do its work within us. I think there's, there's a great place to practice that at the communion table. So um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't feel weird about sitting in your seat. You, know, you don't need to participate in this part. But if you are a follower of Jesus, um, when you're ready, you can come forward and practice repentance in the taking of our King's broken body and his shed blood for us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Thanks for all the ways that you call us to repent. Help us listen to the conviction of the Spirit, not with dread, Lord, but with a sense that the Spirit's conviction is opening up the possibility of greater life.
Holy Spirit, would you fall afresh on your people this morning? Would you fill us anew? Would you help us walk through the doorway of repentance and humility into receiving the fullness of who you are? We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.